Well, we've uh, looked through the Gospel of John, and uh, we looked through 1 John, and then we're looking through now Revelations. Sorry, I have this, uh, uh, I don't know. My father's like fifth generation pastor, and when I say Revelations, plural, it just bothers him like no tomorrow. So I've gotten in the habit as a good son-in-law of being as irritating as possible. I, I may slip up and say Revelations as a result of that. It's singular. There's just one revelation going on here. Uh, let me just start. He says, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, a lot of folks feel like the thrust or the main purpose of the book is seen in verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. We'll maybe look at that next week. And there's a few different thoughts on that. But, but I think a, a good place to start in terms of the purpose of the book is right off the bat in the, the title and the first lines that he gives. What, what he's saying, the word revelation, it's um, like a, an uncovering. It's like the idea of there's a statue with a tarp over it, and then it's like the pulling off uh, of the tarp. And, and, but he makes it clear in here when he's talking, and we'll get to that point, that, that it's not necessarily that there's something new about Jesus that he's letting us know. What the meaning is of that uncovering is there's, there's something that is obscuring what we know about Jesus. And he's going to, he's writing these, these things, and not he's writing these things because he says, which God gave Jesus to show his servants. God has given this to, through, I'm going to get to that too in a second, John, uh, to, we'll get to that also, the seven churches there, but, but to, he says at the beginning here, just people that are followers of him. Because there's, Sometimes, if you look at the, the context of this being written from about 60 A.D. to about 300, there has always been sort of local persecutions of the church up till that point. But there was going to be starting a sort of new era that lasted for a few hundred years where the actual government, the Roman Empire, was going to join in on that. And I think Eusebius writes that just multitudes and multitudes of people were killed. So, so it's a, a very trying time that was about to happen. And, and so I, I think what he's getting at here is he's saying, look, when we're going through, and it's not just to them at their time, but, but to us also, that when we go through really trying times, when when things are just pressing on us in a really heavy way that the things that we know about Jesus tend to become obscured in those. And we are seeking for help, but he's saying that part of the help comes in us sort of in him taking that obscurity away so that we can look again closely at Jesus. And what he says is, God gave him to show to his servants uh, the things, that, that's correct, which must, uh, the which must is, um, which must in the sense of uh, things that are necessary or there's something that's lacking. You know, so, so, so the things, he's writing it so that the, God has given it so that the things that are sort of lacking or, or that are 
obscured by the title about Jesus. And then he says, uh, which, mu- which must, that's lacking, and then he says, soon take place. It's actually take place soon. But the take place is uh, take place in the sense of like moving from one state to another state of mind type thing. So he's saying, he's writing these things, and it says soon, quickly. And because of the situation uh, that's coming upon them, and because of we're going to go through times when we're just encountering a lot of difficulty for a myriad of different reasons. He's saying that when we go through that, the help that God is giving is he wants to take away some of the things that are obscuring Jesus, who he is, and what Jesus is doing. And by us seeing Jesus more clearly or looking at those things that the situation was obscuring, that it'll, that it'll meet our need by not in a long process, but very quickly bring us from a state of being that's being dictated by the trouble of like, you know, the state of being, might be, I just don't know what God's doing, I'm just depressed, I, I'm uh, troubled, I, I'm just fearful, I, I'm all, different types of things to a new state of being, which might be marked by just, well, I wonder what God's doing, or a state of calmness, or maybe uh, having some encouragement. That, that's the type of thing that he's looking at, that he's writing some things, and obviously it's about things that Jesus is doing in heaven, and they're not necessarily new things about Jesus, but because of our situation that has come upon us in this time, we need to be able to, it's causing Jesus to become who we know him to be, to be obscured, and he's pointing these things out to us, or unobscuring them, you might say. He said he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John. Um, Even though it says, John, uh, quite a few people do not see this book as being written by John. And oftentimes, you know, in uh, sort of the modern era when that happens, it's to sort of lessen or to say that we don't really need to listen. But this actually goes way back to, you know, I talked about Eusebius or, you know, it goes way back. But the, the main reason why uh, people feel like it's not John and the reason why I feel like I might as well just take it for what it says, John, is that they see that there is some... Um, differences in the style between this and the Gospel of John. And this is a very common thing that comes up. And it comes up primarily amongst folks that goes way back into the Greek-speaking era of when someone feels like they understand a language and are able to speak it very elegantly and very intelligently, it makes no sense to them that someone would ever do so in another way. Does that make sense? It's like, if you could speak elegantly, you always would. If you could speak or write with correct grammar, you always would. And they never see any reason why someone who could would code change, you might say, in a different thing. And part of it is a 
invalidation of what's happening. But anyways, I don't want to go into that. I just sort of dismiss that in my own mind as just not being what I see happening. I see people changing the way that they speak all the time. In fact, I know pastors that speak completely different from their morning service to their evening service because in their morning service, it just happens to be people who have grown up in the church and their uh, you know, second service at 11 is people who have never set foot in church and they just completely change the way that they talk. From one, I'm not really able to do that, but I know uh, there are people who, you know, are very elegant in the way that they talk. For, for me, it's, you're going to get what you get one way or the other because I'm not capable of being all that elegant, so sorry about that. But there are people that, are, that I know that change things up in a completely different way. For me. Anyways, I'm just going to proceed forward from here on with, with John. And I'm not saying that you can't think that John didn't write this that's fine. I just think the extent is the same either way. So, so when, when I talk, I'm just going to talk in terms of John. And I'm going to also point out some things where I feel like it matches with, since we looked at the Gospel of John and First John, where it matches with his thinking. It says, who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Uh, the Word of God is a common way of phrasing uh, within the prophets that when a prophet spoke, he says, here is the Word of God. And so it's a way of... And so by the nature of that, it's also a reference to the Word of God, the Hebrew Bible that they had, up to the words of the prophets, you might say. But when it's put in conjunction with the testimony of Jesus, that phrase, it's usually a reference to the gospel, you could say the Gospel of John, which he says the things that he heard. In other words, what he's making clear here is what I'm about to say about Jesus isn't new and refreshing in the sense that it's not something you didn't, that the Gospels don't tell us about Jesus. He's just saying that for whatever reason in life, something has come up that's, that's working to obscure what the Gospel has made clear. And I'm taking that obscurity away. That's what God is doing, is taking that obscurity away. So, so it's not something that's different than the rest of the Bible. It's not something that's uh, new or unique in that sense. Um, it, it's something that is more just uh, returning us to the clarity that we might have if we didn't have the, something going on that was sort of obscuring our view. He says... Blessed is he who reads those or uh, guards and who hears the words of this prophecy. Um, it's a first of sort of seven Beatitudes, which is one way you could kind of look through the book. But people also bring up that this may be one of the reasons why there is a discrepancy between this, that the, the situation that John was in, in his area, in the church, is that the majority of the church was from a very poor, uneducated background of the churches that he's writing to there. And so it was going to be the case that uh, some people were going to read it and some people were going to hear it. I, I don't know if that's what he's getting at, but that would make sense. But there's also something in there that's, you know, 
You know, when, uh, um, so Karen, when she sends me a text, she sends it always on Siri. She, uh, because of her sight problems, she does Siri. And so Siri oftentimes just sends crazy messages. <laughs> and so I'm constantly like looking at it and thinking, I don't understand what she's saying. And then my kids, you know, the, even the younger kids, they just laugh at me. So I don't understand why you can't understand what mom is saying. It's like, well, I mean, it's, and then they just laugh and they just say, it's because you're trying to read it. And I'm like, well, it's written text. And they go, no, no, just in your mind, just say it out loud, and then you'll understand what Siri's saying. <laughs> it's not that they're less sophisticated than me. I'm less sophisticated and less understanding about what's going on. But that's just to say there is an occasion when something is written in a sense that it's the hearing of it makes more sense than even the written. And I'm not... The only reason why I bring this up is is that instead of dismissing something, like one of the problems, or it's even the way I'm putting it out, one of the ways that people see the problem with Revelation, which actually isn't a problem, is that there's a lot of grammatical, uh, what they would call errors. And so there's been a huge temptation uh, over the years for a person uh, writing it out to correct those errors when they write it out. So let me back up a little bit. So here's how the Bible works. Let's, John wrote this book. And, and when he wrote it out and sent it out to his church and people had like a manuscript, that was the original source. That source has since been lost. We don't have that in any of the books of the Bible. But what we have is when that was sent out, other people made some copies of it and it was brought out to other churches. And so you may have a church, you know, a thousand miles away that has a copy of this and they've maintained that copy. And then you have another place that's maintained their copy. And so what you have that's actually completely unique with the Bible is instead of there being like normally in in history, there's three or four sources that we have to compare. And what we do between those three and four is we see where there's some inconsistencies and then we judge what that original manuscript said based on the commonalities of it. But in the Bible, you literally have thousands (laughs) hundreds, thousands, depending on the book, from different places, different regions where they've been kept independent. And so when like 98% of it matches up with everything, you have a lot of security that like, oh, this is a pretty good representation of what that original text is. Does that make sense? So, so what our belief in the church is, is that the original text was complete and God wrote it for a certain reason. God had it there like it is up to, you know, Jesus even points out, the, the punctuation with purpose. And so our Bibles will oftentimes write in italicies or parentheses, uh, put just small portions where um, there's inconsistencies between all those different manuscripts. And, and so uh, for, for a lot of different reasons, there's different, and I'll give you an example of that because uh, I don't want to hit it at the end, but it says at the end, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So all of the earlier manuscripts completely, all manuscripts completely agree that it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Some of the later manuscripts add the first and the last, or the beginning and the end. And then that's sort of 
some manuscripts have that scattered throughout the text, and it doesn't really change the meaning. <laughs> it just seems as though, since it wasn't in the earlier ones, as though when someone translates, they just give an extra explanation, and then that was just continued on. So it's those types of things. It's not changing anything, but that's what you're looking at to get at what the original text was. So you have to ask yourself what that does when we read through Revelation. And what it does is it forces us to look at main general meanings that are coming out and not get sidetracked onto small detail, which is probably the intent of God as he's gone through that. Okay, sorry. I know this is getting boring. I'm going the extra length here, especially at the beginning, to try and explain how what I'm saying I'm getting from the text, the Bible, and that this is what, because it does you no good if you walk away from this saying, oh, well, this is what, you know, this dude had to say. It's like, I have nothing to say. But, but I just want you to kind of see that this is the way I'm reading what the text says, and, and that's what we want to be looking for. Uh, he says, this is really interesting. This is going to be super boring to you, but it was really interesting to me. Sorry. He says, and heed or guard the things which were written to it for time is near and um, um, the word for time there, uh, chronos, it's, uh, um, it has a huge historical significance. Like you could, it has its own Wikipedia page. I'd recommend you reading through the Wikipedia page if you're into that type of thing. Um, but it's interesting because of what it means. It's not, it's not time chronologically. It's more time in terms of opportunity. In, in the Greek world, that word first started being used uh, as an archer. You know, when uh, you pull back the string, when you get to just the point that you need to go to to release it so that it has enough velocity to go penetrate the target, they call that moment of release the chronos. And uh, uh, it's sort of this moment of opportunity that, like, is exact to what needs to happen with that. It, they, it's a bigger way that it was used was in weaving, where you have all these threads, you know, lined up, and the we- I don't know what it's called, a loom or the weaving machine. I don't know. The magical weaving machine, we'll say. And it's when it, it separates, creates a little opening between the threads so that the guy can thrust in the cord however it is he does it, and then it forms this tapestry or like, I don't know, what it is that it's supposed to be requires taking that little moment of opportunity where it like pops open to like for this task. That's what he's saying here. (laughs) He's saying, look, when you're going through difficult things, you're going to, if you're a believer, you understand some things about Jesus, but the nature of the difficulty is going to start obscuring what it is that you know. But it's this moment of opportunity, he says, that if we're guarding what we know about Jesus, that if we hit that at that moment, it will create something. And it'll change us from a state of being to another state of being. It'll change our perspective. And so he's writing this. God is giving it to him, and he's writing it so that 
that moment of opportunity would happen. In other words, that moment that to us is difficulty is actually an opening. (laughs) If we grab a hold of who it is in Jesus to change our perspective on life. And he says, begins to, that's the end of the introduction, and he begins to talk now, I think, about what it is, sort of give a general list that he's going to expand on. But there's just a bunch of things here to look at, and I'll just race through them. But I'll try and show how that, you can see how there might be this way of thinking, and then it creates this opening that if we see Jesus clearly, what we know about him, it will very quickly change our outlook on things. The first thing he says is, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, he describes later in the chapter the exact regional areas of that, but everybody is completely unanimous, and everybody back then, this would have completely caught them also, It agrees that there were not seven churches there. There were, all, there were more. You know, that, that wasn't the extent. And so people wonder, well, why is it he says seven churches when there's more than seven churches there? And people, you know, think through maybe he's only talking to seven specific, but that actually doesn't make that much sense because he's definitely talking to that region. It, it, by the region that he defines is the region that John, who wrote the Gospel of John, oversaw those seven churches. So that would make sense, him giving it to John, because it's the churches he's overseeing. So we sort of default to, and this happens a lot in Revelations, that we default to symbolism and say, well, it must just be a symbol. Seven is sort of a perfect number of things. But if you just look at it for what it says, if you just take it plainly, it's saying something. (laughs) In other words, what it's saying is, is when we look out at that area, at that historical time, we see, I'm just going to say 12. I'm not saying it's 12, but it's just for the sake of talking easier. We see 12 churches. But when God looks at it and it's Jesus is administrating his power in it, he says seven. And we have a problem with that. <laughs> That's one of the things that I think he's getting at. <laughs> is that when we look out at things, we're very confident that we know this is what the case is. But what he's saying is, is, well, Jesus decides what it is. And what he decides may or may not match up with what we see, how we've organized things, how we've thought everything needs to be divided up, how we think everything needs to be labeled, how we think, you know, our organization... The way he's doing it doesn't need to match up with that whatsoever in the slightest. And if he says there's seven, then there's seven. (laughs) We got it wrong, (laughs) the way we divided everything's up there. But he goes on with that. He says, how is it then that you can, if if it's not just like looking at it, well, I mean, there's obviously 12 churches there. What do we have to look at? John says it. Right off the bat, he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. We'll look at that part at the end because he repeats it. But if you just look at that first part, people oftentimes dismiss it as just a salutation or a greeting that has no meaning behind it. But that would make no sense that God would give this book and give a greeting that has no meaning. 
It has meaning behind it. He's saying literally that God is what's happening here, what he's praying, what he's hoping for, what he sees happening here in the giving of this book is that grace and peace is going out. In other words, what obscures Jesus is the way that we look out at things and think we understand how things are working in the world and think that we already know how things are dividing up in this and that, and that the way that we see things, that is synonymous with what it is that Jesus is doing. And what John is saying, no, what we need to be looking at is, what we need to be following is where do we see grace and peace coming out? And this is something with Jesus when he sent out the seven. He said, you go in, take no clothes, you know, you take your tunic with you. No clothes, why did I say that? Uh, don't, no money with you. And, and go in and, and look for a person of peace. You know, look, there's two different ways that you can look at things in, in life. Look, I'm trying to, I'll, I'll, let me see if I can give an example here. Okay. One way is you look at things, and maybe originally you see uh, there was some grace of God involved in me, like getting into a school. But then there's also this sense of, like, I studied really hard. I worked hard. I got this. And God gave those grades, you know, to me to get into the school. And then, but then there's also, along with that, a certain sense of deserving. And then you go through college and you feel like you know, a, a more achievement here and you can still attribute that to God but then there's also this sort of sense that well part of what God's given is that prestige of being there that's being used and, and then we look for a job after that and we have this anticipation that like well it's been prestigious getting in prestigious here and, and so then the job will be prestigious but then you know, what the Lord leads you to is, I don't know, I don't want to, um, this isn't like a, uh, I'll just say it without giving a, a name of a job. Some other job opens up. In other words, grace and peace, the opening here looked prestigious, the opening here looked prestigious, but then the opening up here all of a sudden looks like something that everyone else sort of discredits <laughs> or everyone else looks at as not being all that type thing. And there's this hesitancy now because it's obscured because we've been going up this other path to, and we don't want to grab a hold of it because it's like, well, I don't know, this doesn't fit. The only reason why it doesn't fit is because if we've been saying it's been God's grace here, it's been God's grace here, and it's God's grace here, it all fits because it's a pattern of God's grace we're following. But we get so messed up when we think God's grace is synonymous with prestige, with prestige. You see what I'm saying? Okay, I don't know how to put it in an example. But you can see how there is this, when you hit this moment of crisis, if we've been slowly falling off, we've been obscuring what God has been doing. But if you just look at it in terms of God's grace and peace coming to us, it pulls that obscurity away and helps us see what Jesus is doing. It makes it clear. And so the help that we have isn't necessarily, we think of the help, it'll be like, well, what I need is help is to gain this hype. No, God wants you here for a reason. And it's an important reason. And we'll get to that, what he means by it's an important reason. And it's what's going to be most fulfilling. And regardless of what anyone else thinks about that, that's completely irrelevant. 
But it's a grace given to us because he loves us and, and cares about us. But the way that we're thinking can sometimes obscure that. He says, And the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Sorry, I know going into this sort of distracts from the main point. Uh, Some people feel that he's talking about the Trinity there, who was and is and is to come. And the seven spirits, it's like a sevenfold it's talking, but it's really talking about the Holy Spirit and then Jesus. That could be the case. I, I, I don't really know. Um, others just take it plainly and just say he's just referring to like seven chosen angels that are there. But, but regardless of what you say on that, the, the point is the same, that you're standing at the throne and what you see in a throne room is the power to make things happen. And what's interesting here is whether you say it's the Holy Spirit or the seven angels, it's, that's kind of can easily be seen as one and the same in a sense that it's the power of the Holy Spirit going out, but these seven... Anyways, the power is resting in a spiritual power to make things happen that is far beyond us. That's what's basically being said in the most general sense, if you were to take everyone would agree with that. And, and what it is is... Look, when Jesus went to the cross, he told them he's going to be going to the cross. Uh, the disciples, though, it was an immensely stressful situation as Judas was coming up and leading armed people up to take Jesus away. And Jesus even, you know, seems to be thrown back by saying, Judas, you betray me with a kiss type thing. There's an, an immensely emotional thrust that's there and and what Peter does is he looks at that situation and he feels this just can't happen they just this we cannot allow them to take Jesus and his not under that moment of crisis he thinks that what God's asking for him, of him and of them, is to use their power to stop this and say, no, this isn't going to happen. I'm putting my, you know, put and he pulls out his sword, which I don't know why a fisher person has a sword, but he's got a sword, and he obviously tries to kill the guy, but he's obviously unskilled. I mean, there, you went just, he ends up chopping the guy's ear off, and uh, I don't think he would... I mean, it doesn't make any sense that he would purposely just try and chop the guy's ear off. He was probably trying to just hit the guy square in the head and missed, chopped his ear off. Jesus just sort of, bewildered isn't the right sense, but it's just sort of, he says, what, what are you doing? And he picks the ear up and performs a miracle right there of putting the ear back on miraculously. <laughs> And then says to Peter, if I wanted to, I could call 10,000 angels down. That's what he's getting at here. It's not something new. He's just saying like, look, the power to make things happen does not rest. I haven't given it to you guys to handle however it is you guys feel like you need to weld some sort of sword and chop someone's ear off and just, this is just stupidness. And I just, all you're doing is just now I have to go and just make up for all of your guys' sin on top of it all. <laughs> It's like he's in this moment of stress and we're not making it any better. We're making it, now he has to go and help this other guy out. 
It's just, he's just saying, look, one of the ways that things get obscured when we're in a stressful situation is we start thinking, well, maybe God's given me the power to help myself here. And so I just need to start doing what I need to do. And what that ends up being, he'll talk about it in a minute, is basically the equivalent of what happened when they pierced him on the cross. That's how we use our energy, and that's how Peter used it. But the power of God is being used. But the power of God is being used to give us grace and peace, like in this situation. Jesus gave grace and peace by taking this guy's... It wasn't that the guy was holy or good. It wasn't that the guy was should have or didn't. He just gives grace and peace to overcome a situation above and beyond anything that we're doing. That's what the power of God is doing. And then he says, why? He says, in Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Another thing that gets obscured is we start thinking of ourselves as faithful witnesses. In a sense, that may be true. But if you look at Peter, what kind of faithful witness is that? You know, having to get a reprimand and, you know, miraculously, Jesus undoes everything that you just did in a moment of crisis like that, which is oftentimes what we do. You know, whatever we do to handle the crisis just creates more of a mess, and Jesus comes in with grace and mercy and fixes the crisis and has to fix everything that we've done for our solution to the crisis. Peter, I mean, Peter is faithful, but he's not faithful in the sense of Jesus says, you know, before the night's over, you're going to have denied me three times. He's not faithful in that. Like, you would look at him, and it's like, that doesn't seem all that faithful. The only thing that's faithful for him is that he's still around and he's banking on Jesus forgiving him in the end. It's faithfulness to the forgiveness, not faithfulness that that I've gotten things right. The the only person who's faithful in the sense of getting things right is Jesus. And what he's saying is, is what people, what we should be banking on in the situation is not what we think of as being faithful, us. But what we should be looking for is the faithfulness of Jesus to us. And he says, the firstborn of the dead. Uh, sorry, I'll go through these fast. One time someone, you know, Jesus said, come follow me. And the guy said, well, let me first go bury my, I think it was his father that had died. Uh, justifiable thing to say. But Jesus responds in a weird way. He says, uh, let the dead bury their own dead. <laughs> and that's another way that when we hit into crisis, you know, look, the way we view things in the world, like, you know, I see 12, Jesus sees 7. The way, the way we view things is, is that we have life, and now we're just doing everything we can to not lose it. But God says, looks down and says, you don't, I mean, you have this like, like you're existing in death, but you're really just, we're just a bunch of dead people walking around. But what I'm doing is I'm giving you life. That's a different perspective. A lot of times we approach problems as I'm just so afraid that something that I have is going to be taken away. But he says the new perspective we have is we need to, with joy and anticipation, see what it is that Jesus is giving. You see how that's different? And he'll expand on all of these later. 
but it's just to give us an idea of how we view things when we encounter problems and how we can get sort of mixed up and it can create a, a, a problem that, that can actually get solved if we are guarding the things that we know about Jesus and seeing this as an opportunity to insert what we know about Jesus in and then with the whole thing it creates this moment uh, that's a brief moment of time but it will create a new way for us to look at things. He says, the ruler of the kings of the earth, when Jesus went to the cross, a pilot, the Roman, uh, who the Rome had put in charge as the ruler, uh, Jesus just sat there and let them accuse him of whatever, didn't say anything. I think he stood there and sat there. Finally, Pilate says, hey, and why aren't you saying anything? Uh, don't you know that I have the power over life and death for you? And then Jesus says something. He's like, you know, he says, well, whatever power you do have has been given to you by God. In other words, God is, the gift that God is giving us, he's not giving it to good people. That's something that may be a rude awakening for us. If he was to only give rain on good people, or only give grace and peace to good people, then there would be no rain, because he views everyone as dead. You know, no one's righteous. No, not one. Every gift that God gives, in his mind, he's giving it down to someone who doesn't deserve it and is going to do something with it, like what Peter did. Just go crazy with it. What he's saying is we need to understand is the gifts that are given do not determine the plan that God is working on because he maintains that power to accomplish what he wants outside of whatever it is that has been given. Does that make sense? Like, that's what I was saying maybe about the, there's a certain amount of power that's given if you've gone to a good school or you get this. And so we, then we start thinking in terms of, well, he's given that power for me to use to do this. That's not what's going on there. He's keeping all the power and the power to accomplish things and establish things in this world. He's keeping for himself, and he has plenty of spiritual forces to, to make it happen. But what he says here then is our role. He says the reason why he does that is to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. He's pouring out grace, mercy, peace on us and the power to make whatever he wants happen. He's holding to himself and he's doing it because he loves us. And he says he made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. When he says priest, that means like a, a sacrificer or someone who's, who's doing something to help people see that they're forgiven, basically. <laughs> Atonement for sin. But, but, but what we're looking at, he says, is the blood of Jesus. In other words, what Jesus has done to do that. He says the purpose is why he's pouring out grace and peace. And for someone like John, it's so that we can make an influence, so that we can make change, not by force, 
but by, as we looked at with First John, but by participating in a heart being changed. And the way a heart is changed is for us to see how much God loves us. And the way that we see how much God loves us is to see that Jesus, the Savior, the Savior that we need, must die for us. And, and what that means is to be able to see that in order for God to be giving us these things, it's not because we deserve it, but it's because he loves us and cares for us, and he's treating us as though we're perfect, even though we're not perfect. And the reason why he's uh, justified in treating us as perfect, because in fact, we are perfect because we have forgiveness. Forgiveness makes us perfect, not our actions make us perfect. And when that happens, there's a release and a freedom. He says, To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That the parting thought with that should be that people aren't walking away thinking, Oh man, this person's so smart or so wise or so elegant, or this person knows so much, or this person really needs to know how to raise kids, or this person knows how to set up the... the, When we're following the grace and peace that's given, and we see that it's not deserved, but it's given out of love, what we should be seeing as we gain relief is that Jesus gets the glory because he's the one who's made it happen. And then he says, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all the tribes of earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Look, what he's saying is, is there's, when we encounter trouble, we see relief from that trouble in the ceasing of what it is that was causing us the trouble, right? Someone's, you know, every morning I walk to school and I get my lunch money stolen and the same kid beats me up. And so when I'm thinking about relief, I'm thinking about a morning when I walk to school and my lunch money doesn't get stolen and I don't get beat up, that type of thing, right? I'm sick and and relief is when it is. He's saying that is going to happen. But there's also a season... When that's going to happen later. And so there's this season, this opening that he's talking about. And what he's getting at is something like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're thrown into the fiery furnace. The relief was not that God prevented the emperor or king or whatever from throwing them into the fiery furnace. It wasn't that type of relief that God gave them. They were thrown in. The type of relief that was given was that Jesus stepped in with them and didn't let it affect them. The guy was amazed, gave glory to God because the fire had no effect, even though it had killed the people that had thrown them in because it was so hot. You need to think about what God's... God isn't like... Look, he didn't need to save Jesus by preventing Pilate or anyone else from killing him on the cross. That's what he's talking about, the, the piercing. They could do whatever they wanted to do. Have at it. Kill him. But does that mean that's the end of it? No, because 
what the gospel say is God gave life in spite of that. And he's saying there will come a time when he is going to fix everything and there will be a ceasing of that type of pain that we inflict on each other. But, but there is a comfort that can be found at that moment that's just by grabbing a hold of and understanding that whatever it is that happened, God is in control. Jesus is arranging things in some sort of way. And he's arranging things and working in whatever it is that's happened so that we can be like a priest and help contribute or be a part of people coming to see the love that God has for them and that there is a forgiveness that's available to us. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord Almighty, who is and was and is to come. Um, there's, there's quite a few references in Revelation to things that are prophesied in the Old Testament. This is one of them. There's a, a, I think it's Isaiah 44. We don't have time to look at it. But you can look at it. But, but it brings it up, this first and the last, and that possibly might be why some manuscripts have that in it as a pointer or a reference to that more directly. But the Alpha and the Omega is fine as a reference to it. It points us just as, as well. But what he's saying in there is he's talking about the Redeemer coming to Israel. It's the promise of Jesus. And what the point of it is in bringing it up is to say that he is the Lord of history. In other words, that all of history is created by him. The history of your life, all that's gone on in you, it's, it's not that he has created the bad moments, but he's, his power has been there in spite of that to create a history for us. And that's something that, that we don't really, that's another difference. If you look at our history, our history is the history of you know what he says. Th- those who have pierced him will see him. Come. It's like that's our history. Is basically thinking, this is what needs to happen, and that means that this person's going to need to die, and so let's make sure that person's dead. That's what the piercing was. It's like pierce, let's pierce the side and check, and because we've got other things that need to happen, you know, we've got I can't remember what religious ho- there's a religious holiday coming. We can't leave this guy up on the cross, so we need to make sure that he's dead. And so let's pierce him so that we can kind of get this over because we need to wrap it up for religious reasons. <laughs> That's a funny thing. That's not funny, but that matches with history. <laughs> That's our history. But he says, no, there's another history where those that, where every nation will come to mourn <laughs> when they see him. And what does that mean? It means it's a history of a change of heart that we have, where, where we see, finally, we have this moment of clarity. And he says that moment of clarity will come at the end. But what he's saying is, is he's arranging our life, troubles and all, everything that goes on, not he's causing evil to happen, we're causing evil to happen, but he's letting that happen and he's responding to it and giving us survival and, and, they, and putting us there. 
and we could just go up to heaven. But he's saying there's a moment of opportunity that is right now where we could see how much God loves us and cares for us. And that in reality, nothing needs to change right now. It will change, but it's okay to have things as they are right now because it provides this opening, this moment of opportunity. And what that moment of opportunity is, is for us to see on the one side how much we need someone other than us to solve a problem. On the one hand, it's for us to see we're the ones who pierced him. On the one hand, it's for us to see we've caused these problems, we've contributed to them. On the one hand, it's for us to see that we have some repentance we need. We have some mourning that we need to do, and we're the ones responsible for it. But that's not where God leaves us. It's a moment for us to see, as we see that we're not the one accomplishing all these things, it's a moment for us to see that Jesus is the one who's giving us good, who's establishing, in the midst of all the chaos that that we're doing, he's establishing these moments of grace and peace, and it's given to us as a gift. That, That everything good in our life that the track and the reasoning of why there has been anything good in our life, that it's not due to things that we've been doing right and wrong. It's not due to us having earned it because a problem is going to come up that's going to make it clear, well, that whole hope is gone. (laughs) You know, I don't have any hope that things are going to get worked out by me getting it right now (laughs) or anyone else getting it right. But it's at that moment it opens this opportunity up to a new possibility that isn't a new possibility that we know, but it puts it in forces that we read it in such a way or hear it in such a way that, that changes it that we realize, oh, that wasn't where the good was coming from. The good was coming from God forgiving us and Jesus making things happen out of love for us and care for us. And as we are hard in that opening and we see the love that God has for us. And as we go through Revelation, part of that will be seeing how much God is holding back the, uh, just the demands of justice for us to have this moment right now. But it's a moment for us to really come to understand how much God really does love us and care for us and the great lengths that he will come to to save us, even so far as to become one of us, even so far as to allow us to kill him, and even so far as to just give eternal life. And as we see that love in these different moments, that love, he says, is God has commissioned that when that is seen, that moment is taken, and we see the love that Jesus has for us, he says, it will create a change in our heart. He will soften our hearts. And the tapestry, if you will, or the cloth or whatever that he's weaving, the history that he's making up, then it will become something 
that, that who we are made to be and who we want to be and what it is that, that we desire and how it is that we want to like make a difference in life or how it is that we want to do something that's real or, or can I, you understand what I'm saying? That that all depends, obviously, on a heart that's being softened. It can't happen outside. You're not doing anything meaningful with a hard heart. You're not doing anything meaningful by chopping people ear off or piercing someone to see if they're dead. That's not meaningful. Meaningful is when grace and peace is coming out. And the only person who's giving grace and peace is Jesus. And when our heart is softened, God says, that then will make us a priest of that message. That is when we'll be able to participate in something meaningful by contributing to that opening happening with people so that people can see the not just the love of God, but the type of love a love that is unconditional, a love that is based on forgiveness, a love that is based on continual forgiveness that overrides everything. And sometimes as we go through troubles, it's, it's not the end of the trouble that we need. It's that something can become clear at that moment. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we just uh, help us to understand what it is that you're saying here. Lord, help us to see your grace and peace in our life. Lord, open our eyes to see how much you love us and and care for us. And, And Lord, Let us guard what we know about you. And when we're in times of trouble, I I pray that we we would hold tight to that and and we would enter into that opening, an opening of opportunity that isn't about our strength and it isn't about a, a moment of opportunity in terms of us getting something right, but it's a moment of opportunity for our heart to be softened by us to be able to see the love and the grace and the peace and what you've done for us on the cross. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.